In the Know with Bernstein Research. Welcome to In the Know with Bernstein Research. In this series, we discuss investment controversies together with what is top of mind and in the news with Bernstein's research analysts. Our disclosures can be found at the end of this and every episode. I am Richard Moffat, based in London, and today I'm joined by Ewan McLeish from Tokyo, our Asian beverage and consumer analyst. Welcome, Ewan. Thanks for having me, Richard. Great to be here. So I'd like to start today. You've recently moved to Japan as part of our expansion into wider Asian markets. Would love to hear what is your first thoughts and how has Japan changed since you were last based working there? It's now been about 370 days since we moved to Japan, so we're still still pretty fresh off the boat by getting settled here. It's been interesting after 15 odd years in Hong Kong, Japan is definitely a more challenging part of Asia to live in, more culturally rich and more rewarding in many ways as well. So it's it's been a great experience for both me and the family. There's a lot of change happening professionally in Japan as well. I've been covering Japanese stocks for, for about eight years now. And the degree of change that I've been seeing from that side in the last 12, 18, 24 months has really accelerated. So it's an exciting time to be here from all aspects. Cool. And what is the biggest material change you're seeing in Japanese corporate culture since you've been covering the space? I think there's been a real change of guard in many management teams. I and mean, it's been a real change in the board mandate that, that a lot of these chief executives are operating under. Previous management teams were maybe about building overseas operations and exposure, whereas the current management teams are much more focused on improving margins, improving returns, and maybe returning capital to shareholders. So really thinking of themselves as shareholder-friendly businesses rather than more private operations in culture terms. Two companies I look at pretty closely, Asahi and Yakult, both fall into that new management teams, new mandates, and quite a different approach to the commercial side of the business and the shareholder relations side. So a lot of that's coming from the pressure from the stock exchange, who are really trying to drive that returns focus. There have been false starts at this many times in the past, but I think it's different this time around. And what I'm seeing is is actually tangible change. It's not just talk about change. It's not just hoped for change. It's not just potential for change. It's actually real tangible change in the way that people are doing business. And I think that's probably the biggest departure from these stocks that are, when I was looking at them seven, eight years ago versus now. Obviously, China still remains a very large market for all your companies. You know, with the demographic turning, the aging population, there has been some concerns just about the growth rate of consumption and consumer demand in China. But you've done a lot of work on the premium consuming class, which actually maybe bucks some of that consensus. Can you talk about that? Yeah, look, China's a big old country. There's, you know, 1.4 billion people and a huge landmass. So you've got examples of pretty much every trend in the world that are are vesting somewhere in China. So when I think about different parts of the consumer universe, I first go to, you know, who are the core consumers that we care about? So when we're talking about premium alcohol brands, premium consumer brands, then I think about the premium consuming class. And that's a group of 90 million odd consumers who are the highest earners in the country. You know, obviously quite a large population. It's, uh, you know, 90 million is is a large country anywhere else. And this group of people, Pre-COVID was growing about 7% a year compared to the the middle class growing about 1% a year. And now post-COVID with the slowdown in China, it's still growing about 5% a year. So, you know, not as attractive as it was before, but still growing really rapidly. And what we like about the premium consuming class is just their, not just their scale and their growth, but their disposable income and their resilience. These consumers tend to be relatively young. They tend to be in their 30s. You know, these are the people who are well-educated 
and are pretty settled in their careers and really delivering a difference now. And they got a lot of disposable income and they're very happy to consume. So even with this slowdown that we're seeing, we're not seeing big problems for their personal balance sheets. I think one of the common perceptions of China is that the demographics are such a burden on younger people. And, and that's very much true in the middle class. You might be familiar with the concept of a young family with one child supporting two sets of poor and aging grandparents. And that's a real burden for one or maybe two earners. In the premium consuming class, it's actually often that structure is often quite positive. If you've had two sets of relatively wealthy parents who have only one child each to funnel their assets down to, then this kind of 30-something premium consuming class consumer actually has a lot of assets coming in their direction as well as their personal income, their monthly wages. So we do see a, a, real, a real resilience amongst those haves in China. In many ways, the thematic of the growth of the Chinese premium consuming class is really about the Gini coefficient, so about income inequality in China. And we're very much of the view that China has a lot of income inequality and that's going to persist going forward. So there are going to be winners within maybe a tough macro environment in China. And that's, we think the, the premium consuming class are those winners on a relative basis. So we like companies that get that. And we like companies who have credible brand propositions that they are specifically marketing and targeting their sales to these premium consumers, we think those are the companies that are going to be winning and unable to capitalize on this premium consuming class thematic, not just now, but you know, for the, the years and decades to come. Yeah, sure. I mean, has it explained to me, if parents were gifted SOE properties in the late 60s, and those, you know, after huge equity pickup in property values over the last 50 years, that concentrating down into this only child family is a very, you know, I mean, that's what underpins the whole of the Chinese property story. Yeah. And obviously there've been people who have missed out because they bought properties in the last three or five years at crazy valuation, and that's not working for them. But there is another underlying kind of the longer term narrative. And I think that's where smart brand owners who understand who these consumers are, where they live, where they socialize, what they care about. Those are the brand owners who are able to capitalize on these themes. So Baiju is a big area of your coverage. Could you just sort of run us through what is Baiju and who's buying it? Yeah. So Baiju just means white liquor. So it's a real category generic term, just like spirits. And if you think about Western spirits, then you've got gin, vodka, rum, tequila, cognac, whiskey, etc. So a huge variety underneath that. And the same under Baiju. So there are, there are five main aromas of Baiju. There's the sauce aroma, which is epitomized by Mao Tai, a brand that many people will know. There's strong aroma baijiu, which is epitomized by a brand called Wulanye. And then there's three or four smaller aromas of baijiu as well. So baijiu is pretty unique because it's, it's the only major spirits alcohol category that is made via spontaneous solid state fermentation. So all Western spirits, beers, wines, you essentially get some kind of sugary liquid. You put in yeast, which, uh, which guzzles up the sugar, and that excretes alcohol on the other side. So it's a, a liquid state fermentation. And you tend to get that, so that sugary liquid either from pressing grapes or taking malting barley and steeping it in water. Whereas in Baijiu, the sacrification, the sugar making and the alcohol production happen simultaneously. So it's essentially these sorghum grains that are put into mud pits in the ground and fermented. So the, the enzymes in the mud walls of the pits, they metabolize the starch in the grains, creating the sugar. 
and then the, the yeasts in the chew, the fermentation starter, guzzles up that sugar and creates the alcohol. So it's a really unique production process. This is the biggest spirit in the world, right? This is the largest spirit market in the world by you. Yeah, largest spirits category in the world. And it and accounts for about 65% of the pure alcohol consumed in China as well. So it's a huge category. And it's a huge value pool as well. There's a massive price ladder that goes here. So you go from the, the sort of dirt cheap dollar for 500 milliliters of 54% alcohol up to Maotai selling for $500 for a bottle of, of 54% alcohol and beyond that as well. So it's a huge value pool. And you know, Maotai is the second largest stock on the entire Chinese stock exchange. Quite unusual that you'd have an alcohol company which has one brand they sell in one bottle in one country. Very unusual to have it being quite that large, but the company does have a 75% EBIT margin. It's a huge cash producing machine. So it's a very unique and very different category to anything I've seen around the rest of the world. When I was traveling during university, I, was, uh, I spent some time in Malawi and, and I did come across a solid state fermentation alcohol there. There was a lady sitting beside Lake Malawi chewing grains and spitting them into a bowl. And that was the enzymes in her saliva were metabolizing the sugars, the starches in the grains to create sugar. And then she was, uh, she was leaving that and the natural yeasts in the air would just let that ferment and create the alcohol. So not massively scalable, but indeed solid state. So I think the, the Chinese Baijiu is, is a long way beyond that. Yeah, this seemingly simple process, but the top end, the high end bottles are trading for three, four hundred dollars for 500 milliliters. So wh what is it that's driving this price premium and how did they command it, the leading players? Yeah, it's, it's really to do with the clear perception of intrinsic differentiation. So consumers, they see a brand like Ma Tai, they know it's scarce, they know it tastes very different, and they see that as being very valuable. Uh, so we've done a lot of work looking at uh, the drivers of pricing power. And the key driver that we've come across is this concept of intrinsic differentiation. So when a consumer believes that a brand or a product is just fundamentally intrinsically different to its competitors, and that difference is valuable and better and relevant to the consumers, then they're very happy to pay these high price premiums. And that's really what is being embodied in the Maotai brand. When you do consumer research and you ask consumers to name as many Baijiu brands as they can, 65-70% of consumers, just all consumers on the street, will say Maotai. About 50% will say Wulanye, the second largest brand. That is astounding to me. If you do that same kind of research in, in other countries, then the, the man on the street or the woman on the street will mention the big mainstream brands. They'll mention the brands that they see on the TV, on the side of buses, sponsoring sports teams. It'll be mainstream brands. Whereas the average person in China is, is referencing the very, very top-end brands in Baijiu. And that just shows how these brands and this category has really caught the kind of national psyche and is a really big part of that. A lot of that's to do with the fact of what is, in essence, influencer marketing, not that it was done in a deliberate fashion. But, you know, for, for decades now, the Maotai brand in particular has been associated with the Chinese military and the Chinese government. There's very famous photos of Chairman Mao toasting with Nixon using Maotai. There are stories about the Red Army crossing the Chushu River near the Maotai distillery and bathing their wounds and fortifying themselves with Maotai. So there's a real kind of cultural and story and cultural relevance around that brand in particular. And consumers believe that it's, it's real and it's valuable and it's better. And what's interesting is if you serve Maotai uh, at your banquet in China, 
everybody knows the cultural signal you're sending. Everybody knows the value of it. And everybody knows that you're making a big statement and there's a huge amount of guangxi, a huge amount of face, a huge amount of respect that you're showing there. The best equivocation I can give in, in kind of Western drinking habits would be champagne. If I walk into a bar and my friends have got a bottle of champagne on the table, I'll probably say, oh, what's the occasion? It's a signal that something special is happening. You know, Maotai is more powerful than that, but it's the same kind of concept in my mind. And that's why consumers are willing to pay these huge premiums for something where the cost of goods sold is the same as, uh, as any other brand, essentially. You've talked in the past, it's difficult to replicate some of the mud pits, that some of the bacteria I think is 5,000 years old. But how much of it is that and how much is it still this brand? Is the brand perception and the support of that brand still the most important driver? So the two go hand in hand. So consumers need to have a belief that there's some intrinsic differentiation. There's some reason to believe there's something in the product that makes it special. So, you know, if they go into the detail, they need to find some kind of core truth there. But I think for the Maotai brand in particular, it's the scarcity. It's the social currency. The demand for the brand vastly outstrips the supply. And that's why the consumer price is about 3,000 RMB a bottle uh, compared to the uh, the recommended retail price of 1,499 and the ex-factory price of just over 1,000 RMB a bottle. So consumers see this as being scarce. They see the social currency and they believe that it has a very unique and distinct flavor and they believe that's underpinned by higher quality production processes and history and unique intrinsics. So consumer brands are not about one dimension. This is not tech where... You've got a, a camera that has 5 megapixels or 10 megapixels. 10 megapixels is clearly a better camera than 5 megapixels. In consumer, it's about emotion. It's about the way that consumers feel about a brand. It's not necessarily all rational. So it's all part of the same package. I mean, what strikes me is over the last sort of 10, 20 years, there's been lots of talk of anti-corruption, economic slowdown, bad property market. But the demand has been very, very resilient. And the profitability of these businesses has been very, very resilient. I mean, is there anything that can change it and health and wellness? I mean, why is it that we just keep seeing people turning up and buying this stuff? I think it's because you've got, well, for a Maotai, there's a scarcity. So there's that social cachet. And as long as you have Chinese people banqueting together and wanting to show respect and wanting to impress people, then that demand is going to be there. Uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, the premium consuming class, the, the people who, who have the income in China are still resilient. And, and that group is still growing, not as fast as it was before, but faster than the middle class of China. I, I think of the Maotai and Wulaunye brands as these kind of valuable bottlenecks. As a consumer gets more affluent, then they tend to want to badge and show that off to their peers. And they tend to adopt the behaviors and the brands and the signaling mechanisms of people who are further along their income journey already. So these brands that express and show that you've made it, that show that you're succeeding, are relatively few and far between. Um, so it's a real social currency. I can say, are we still seeing that then? So, you know, young people being more healthy, not drinking alcohol, but when they hit whatever the target age is for these brands, they're still starting to consume in the same pattern as their parents and their grandparents? The journey of alcohol consumption in China is actually quite different to the journey of alcohol consumption in many other countries around the world. Young people in China never have consumed a lot of alcohol. People start consuming more alcohol in their late 20s, early 30s. It tends to be more business-related, historically it's been more business-related. That's very different to the US, the UK, Australia, etc., 
where people go to universities, they start drinking lots, and they get into the workforce, they've got more money in their pockets, they can drink more. And then as they start to settle down and maybe find a partner and their lives change, maybe they have a family, then their, their alcohol consumption diminishes and maybe goes more premium over time. That's not the story in China. Young people, they don't drink, they live with their parents very often. And then once they get into the workforce, then over time, they start being invited along to banquets. They start drinking baijiu as part of the, the culture. You have to do it. And they start drinking baijiu and they get used to it and they enjoy drinking baijiu. And then they get to the point where they're actually hosting banquets themselves. So, And they're showing that they've reached that stage in their lives and their careers that they're the ones who are the hosts. It's quite a different pathway to many other countries. So, Ewan, before we finish baijiu, I mean... What about the threat from Western spirits and Western premium spirits? Is that something, you know, as Chinese consumers have more opportunities, get out and about, are they starting to make different choices or is Baiju still going to be the premium spirit? Absolutely. You know, consumers' drinking repertoires are expanding, particularly the, the premium consumers, the kind of leading edge consumers. They're looking for more different experiences. They're looking for more brands that are and, and products that are relevant on the kind of more diverse occasions that they're consuming alcohol. But I don't really see this as a kind of one-for-one -one substitution type of game between Baijiu and Western spirits. The Baijiu is relevant on the meal occasion. It's not relevant on any other occasion. You don't go to a nightclub or a bar and find them serving Baijiu. You just will not be able to buy it there. Western spirits in Guangdong, cognac is relevant on the meal occasion. But beyond that, Western spirits is very much a nightclub, bar type occasion, off-trade type occasion. So really, the fragmentation of alcohol consumption occasions, Western Spirits is going to play really nicely into that and take a greater share there. I will talk about premium beer playing on, along the same kind of themes. But the, the meal occasion, I think Baijiu really has that, that pretty well, or the premium meal occasion, the premium banqueting occasion, Baijiu has that pretty well sealed up. There is more risk to Baijiu as you go for the kind of more day-to-day -day meals. I think maybe 10 years ago, 10 friends would go out and drink four bottles of 400, 500 RMB Baijiu and then go home. Nowadays, they might go out and drink two bottles on the meal occasion and then go on to a nightclub, a bar, a KTV, and, and they'll be drinking different categories there. So there is a risk at the middle. Uh, there is pressure coming from Western spirits and beer, and that pressure is on the midpoints of Baijiu, but, but not so much on the very high end like Maltai and Wulanya and those kind of brands. Next thing I'd like to cover is beer. How premium a product is beer and is it targeting the similar demographic? Currently beer in, in China is a very affordable product and it's a very mainstream product as well. We think of beer as being 65% unbranded and we call it unbranded because it does have different names and different labels in the bottles but there's very little differentiation in terms of the flavor or the alcohol content or the style and there's almost no consumer marketing. The brands are not communicating why they're different from each other and why consumers should see them as relevant, why consumers should choose them. They're essentially commoditized products at attractive price points, but not particularly exciting. In other markets around the world, that'd be three, five, seven, ten percent of the market rather than 65%. In China, the premium products currently, Budweiser is the biggest premium brand in China. Budweiser looks and feels like a mainstream brand around the rest of the world. And I think in 10 years time, we're going to be seeing Budweiser, Snowdraft, Qingtao Draft, those current premium brands being the kind of core mainstream brands, the middle of the market in China. And brands that we currently think of as being very super premium like Corona and Hogarten and Heineken, 
these will be the kind of entry-level premium brands. So I think there's a long, long way for just kind of a, a shift of the center of gravity of the beer industry to go from this very basic, decent quality, but totally unexciting and not massively relevant to consumers' lives to becoming uh, much more akin to other markets in the world. We've seen this in the US over the course of the last 40 odd years. In the late 70s, the market was disrupted by the launch of light beer, Miller Light was launched, and then uh, Coors Light and Bud Light jumped on that bandwagon. And you've just seen now light beer is dominates the market and the waves of innovation through imports and craft beer have just been layering and layering on more complexity and more value to the industry. So we're starting to see that in China, but that, that's where it's heading. But what about, you know, how profitable can this be? Because I think I'm right in saying beer, depending which one you choose, is cheaper than bottled water in many parts of China, even in restaurants. So how can they make money? Well, that's exactly the crux of it. That's why all the brand owners are innovating away and trying to get out of the economy and the mainstream and the unbranded side of the business and into the branded, more premium side of the business. So Budweiser APAC in China has much higher margins than the rest of the brewers, largely because the center of gravity of their business is in the premium segment, whereas the center of gravity of the CR beers and the Qingtao's and the Yanjing's is, is in the economy mainstream segment. So it's really about this kind of product mix the you know brewing a premium brand the, the packaging materials are slightly more expensive the liquid is slightly more expensive but you're charging three times the price for the end product that's really where the margin comes in and is this market growing i mean the premium beer market premium beer is growing the overall market is not growing the overall market has been you know there's been a lot of ups and downs with covid but but broadly pre covid it was declining around 1% a year overall beer consumption but within that, you were seeing premium beers growing at high high single digits and super premium beers growing at you know high teens. And we think that's going to continue. What's interesting here is you've got this kind of confluence of factors driving premiumization. So from the consumer perspective, they're going out to nighttime consumption occasions and they're looking for more variety in their nighttime entertainment. They don't want to just go for dinner and then go home. They want to go to bars, restaurants, nightclubs. And increasingly, live music venues is something that's a theme that's been growing a lot over the last year or two. So they're looking for more diversity in terms of entertainment. So then the outlet owners are looking for ways to surprise and delight these consumers, and they want to give them different brand assortments. They need to make a margin to fund the quality of their venues. So they're looking for more premium products. The distributors want more premium products because they get more margins, and the brewers want more premium products because they get higher margins as well. So you've got all these different players in the market who are really pushing towards more interesting, dynamic variety within the, the beer offerings. And as we said earlier, consumers are willing to pay more for product attributes that they see as being real and valuable, i.e. strong, intrinsically differentiated brands. So you know, I, th I think this is something that's, uh, that's here to stay. And how many players do you think will succeed in the super premium space in China? Because presumably only a few can they actually really command super normal margins. So building brands takes time. Brands in consumer are emotional constructs. You don't just tell somebody that a brand A is objectively better than brand B. It's about how it makes you feel. It's about whether your friends are drinking it and whether it's socially acceptable to drink. That takes a long time to influence. So a company like Budweiser China started, they bought the Budweiser brand in 2008. And then they started introducing Corona and Hogarten and some of the other brands in, in maybe 2010, 2012. 
and they've been building these brands progressively since then. The Heineken brand was introduced probably 80 years ago and was kind of stewarded very well by Heineken for many, many years and, and CR Beer under their distribution over the last three or four years has been expanding that. It takes a long time to build these brands. I would say Budweiser is by far ahead in terms of the development of their portfolio and the breadth of their portfolio. Carlsberg, Chongqing is quite a bit behind, but the second in the leadership there. And then CRBR with the Heineken brand is third. Qingtao, Yanjing, they're a long, long way behind. And you obviously look at the Japanese brewers as well. I mean, is there room for an Asahi? There is over time. The development of the industry, we're starting to see a craft industry, more differentiated products. Consumers are looking for, for more unique and valuable products. There's absolutely an opportunity, but you have to convince these consumers that these brands are different and real and worth paying more for, and you don't do that overnight. So, you know, Sai Super Dry has been in the market for many, many years in various kind of ways and forms, and there's a lot of cultural spillover from Japan into China. So there is some latent equity there, but it's not something that's going to be, these brands are not going to be booming and suddenly taking massive market share overnight. So I think there is an opportunity for these, for, for some of the Japanese brands and some of the other international brands over time. It's not blank space though. You know, you do have these big incumbents who are proactively building their brand portfolios. So if you're not proactively building your brand, it's just not going to work. But elsewhere in the world, what do you see as opportunity for Sahi? I actually think the most compelling opportunity is in their own backyard. The Japanese beer industry is fascinating because they've got three different tax rates for different types of beer. So the highest tax on full malt beer, a different uh, lower tax rate on haposhu, which is less than 67% malt content, and then the lowest tax on new genre, which has zero malt content. And that's driven this race to the bottom in terms of innovation. And you've had this downward negative mix shift for decades now. The government's changing the tax and that's driving a trading up. So they're equalizing the tax over time and that's driving consumers to trade out of the low end new genre beer and into full malt beer. And this is a huge opportunity. The process started in 2020 and the tax will be fully equalized by 2026. So you've got this structural tailwind behind the full malt beer category and, and Asahi has the highest exposure to full malt beer in Japan. And they get this opportunity. They're innovating very heavily against the full malt beer opportunity. They've launched a number of brands. And what we see is they're essentially copying and pasting from their very successful portfolio strategies in Europe and in Australia. And we're seeing innovation at higher price points with more intrinsically differentiated products. We recently saw the launch of the Asai Super Dry Crystal brand, so 3.5% alcohol. So you know, different alcohol strengths, different styles for different occasions for different consumers. So it's that kind of classic, give the consumers what they want and, and meet the needs. These are the kind of things that the global brewers started doing in probably 2007, 2008. And I always remember I joined SAB Miller in, in 2003. And my brothers used to tease me saying, oh, it's all the same beer that comes out of the same pipe and you just put it in different bottles. And I would argue until I was blue in the face that that was not the case. And it was probably around 2007 or 2008 when the industry said, your hands up, this stuff is just not differentiated enough. We're trying to charge 25% more, but there's not enough difference there. So that kind of realization that the global industry got to in that kind of late 2000s, that's where the Japanese industry is now. And Asahi is by far ahead of the competition there. So I think their domestic market, in my mind, is the most underappreciated opportunity for the business from the investment community. 
we're starting to run out of time. But before we go, another area of your courage I think is fascinating is probiotics. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about health and wellness trends. I mean, how? what is the potential TAM for the probiotic market? And I suppose who is best placed? I think the value of probiotics is real and tangible. And it's very well accepted and understood in Asian markets, particularly in Japan, where probiotics, uh, uh, the Yakult brand essentially created the category in the 1930s and has been kind of a staple ever since. So I think Asian cuisine for centuries has understood the importance of fermented foods for gut health. And they've understood the link between gut health and immunity and gut health and sleep and gut health and mental health. So that's something that's been well ingrained. It's not really a question mark in many Asian countries. Western medicine over the last decade or so, and particularly in recent years, has been scientifically proving and understanding the link between the gut and the gut-brain axis and these, these health outcomes. It's kind of the aha moment is occurring in Western markets that probiotics are important. So I think that's a huge opportunity around the world, and it's just starting to be explored. And, and how difficult is it? Any particular barriers to entry for probiotics? From a production perspective, there's no particular barrier to entry. Actually, interestingly, in Australia, there's a lot of OEM uh, producers, so, so contract producers who will manufacture probiotic materials that can be added to food products there. So it's not so much about the production being difficult. It's more about the brand side of things. You know, this is something where, you know, once again, consumer goods are emotional. Is this a brand I trust? Do they have proven benefits? Is this going to help me or not? So it's, it's about convincing the consumers. And I think where you've got brands that are well-established and well-understood, Yakult probably being the best example of that, those are the ones that are best placed to win in the environment. What I like about probiotics is that there's almost a crossover between that consumer good and preventative health and the, the technical side. So Yakult has started to ladder their portfolio around the bacterial concentration. So their core product, New Yakult, has about 350 million bacteria per milliliter. And they've launched some very successful products which have a billion bacteria per milliliter. And that reminds me very much of the spirits industry. So you don't have to be a Scotch aficionado to get the concept that a 21-year-old bottle of Scotch is better than a 12-year-old, is better than an 8-year-old. It just intuitively feels, well, it's been aged for longer, so it must be better, and therefore I'll pay more for it. And similarly, billion bacteria should be more effective, intuitively feels more effective than half a billion bacteria, therefore I should pay more for it. So I think leveraging those kind of easily graspable truths and the very tangible product benefits those are some of the things that are being done very well by companies like Jackal. And I think there's a huge opportunity for probiotics and, and that brand particularly around the world. So which markets then, where's the most opportunity for the likes of Yakult? Yeah, so that particular brand is most mature in Japan, in Indonesia, in Mexico. Some of the big growth opportunities, China's big growth opportunity, but Probably the, the most exciting ones would be in the US, actually. They're having a very big push in the US. They're expanding the capacity there. And I think this is really playing into that concept of the Western medicine is, quote unquote, discovering the, the importance of gut health and the gut brain axis and discovering products that can help with that. I think some of those, uh, the US is probably one of the most compelling and interesting opportunities at the moment. So we're running up against time. Thanks very much for joining us from Tokyo, Yun. Yep, thanks very much for having me, Richard. You've been listening to In The Know with Bernstein Research. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to like or subscribe. In The Know with Bernstein Research.
If you do not have access to Bernstein's research, you can find it at bernsteinresearch.com, where you can also find important disclosures that we encourage you to review. Bernstein has no obligation to provide any updates or changes at any time in the future. All references and or market forecasts are correct at the date of recording. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter and may not be the same as the views of Bernstein or its affiliates. Bernstein is not providing any financial, legal or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast and this should not be considered as investment advice. This podcast must not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. None of us hold positions in any of the equities that we have discussed today.